Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Hello, Entree Architect podcast listeners. My name is Bob Fisher. We've had a little takeover here today at the Entree Architect podcast. Mark turned his back for a little bit too long. We snuck into the studio and we've taken controls of the podcast. But there's a very important reason why we did that. And I think that you will appreciate our motives. Every week, Mark brings all sorts of experts that can help small firm architects be better at what they do. Along the way, Mark has built up quite a story for himself. In fact, Entree Architect has been through quite a journey of entrepreneurship, and we wanted to shine a little light on that. So this episode, we are going to be interviewing Mark to find out more about what that journey was like and uh, get the insider view. So Mark, welcome to your show. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. I, I uh, It's very interesting to be be on the other side to be in this chair um and you know when i get my arms unbound from the chair that, that you've tied me up in to to do this you know <laughs> i'm just kidding i i'm really i'm really excited about this this is going to be a lot of fun thank thanks for uh for hosting and for inviting me on my show not a problem now uh the truth behind this is that we started talking about this back in june you know, periodically, Mark, you and I will get together just as uh, as colleagues and we'll catch up on what's going on with one another. 
And uh, there have been some really big changes around Entree Architect and in your your life personally uh, over the last nine to 12 months. And in talking about those last last autumn, and then also again in early March uh, of this year, we kind of cooked up this idea that, or, or I think I was pitching you the idea that you really have some fantastic things to share with the community that come right from your personal experience and the evolution of your business. Now, I know that there's a lot of people out there who are probably regular listeners and they are familiar with a lot of what you have done along the way, but there are probably a lot of people who don't have the whole story. So I wonder if we could uh, start out. Well, actually, let's let's start out this way. Entrepreneurship is one of those words that's um, uh, that's kind of overused in a lot of ways or is used a lot but it's a very powerful word. So when I think about entrepreneurship, I think about this very simple concept. It's a very special ability to take a look out into the marketplace and see a gap. And that gap is where people are not being appropriately served. And then coming up with a creative way to fill that gap, some kind of offering, some kind of business uh, that winds up serving people in a new way and taking care of a need that was previously unmet. So how does that square with, you know, your definition of entrepreneurship? Yeah, I think that's that's dead on. I, I think that's exactly what entrepreneurism is. Fantastic. So let's keep that as kind of a lens uh, that will look at your entire path through. And sort of skipping back to the question that I started and abruptly stopped, take us through uh, kind of the history of Entree Architect, uh, where you began and where you saw opportunities or gaps in how the market was being served and what that caused you to do. Yeah. And, and I think I may go even further back than we originally discussed because I, I think it really does start with my dad and, and me as a child because my dad is a retired auto mechanic and he owned his own business, had his own repair shop, you know, had pumps out front. And uh, when I was in my, you know, may I was 12, 13, maybe, I started working for him to sort of push in a broom, cleaning the, 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 the lot, and eventually graduated to pumping gas and then eventually did some repair work. And as a child, you just look at your dad and it's like, that's just his job, right? And later on, when I, you know, I, just decided to be an architect when I was 10 and I just focused my whole life on becoming an architect to the point where I've manipulated the evaluation tests in middle school to make sure that it would come out positive for architect. <laughs> so, so I, I was going to be an architect no matter what. And that was my plan and went through architecture school at Roger Williams university in Rhode Island, graduated there, worked for a bunch of different firms, looking at sort of gaining experience in different types of firms working for very small firms, working for very, very large firms, uh, ultimately settling down, working for KG&D Architects in Mount Kisco, spent a few years there, sort of a medium-sized firm, and learned what I needed to learn, with always with the idea that I would start my own firm. The reason I started with my dad is because my dad was an entrepreneur. And I guess that's what sort of inspired me to be the entrepreneur, which I never really understood, you know, I never really recognized that term or what that was until later. Um, and definitely didn't recognize my father as an entrepreneur. I just 
thought he was a mechanic who owned his own business, right? And But as you, you start doing it yourself and you start learning about business and learning about entrepreneurism and what that is, I look back and he absolutely was an entrepreneur. He ran his own business. He was a, a, a car collector. He would buy and sell Corvettes, Chevy Corvettes. Um, and so I grew up as a Corvette kid going to car shows and flea markets and he would restore cars. He would buy them. Um, in really rough shape, and he would restore them, and he would sell them, and you know that was a big piece of what he did, and that that's entrepreneurism. And so every everything that he did was coming from this entrepreneurial spirit. I don't even believe that he recognized himself as an entrepreneur, even probably to this day. Although he probably has recognized it now because I've talked about it in the past. But that's definitely what inspired me to want my own firm. And so as soon as I could. We, we launched our own firm. And so I met my wife, Anne-Marie McCarthy, who is also an architect. I met her in my uh, my first architecture job. It was her second architecture job in Ridgewood, New Jersey. Barry Postganser Architects in, in um, Ridgewood, New Jersey. And um, that's where we met. And, uh, and, and very quickly fell in love. And I'm not going to go into the whole love story uh, and the secrecy behind it. Nobody knew that we were even dating. And when we left, we announced that we were going to get married and shocked the entire firm. Um, but, but we did get married. And uh, we went off to Westchester, New York. Anne-Marie got a job in Katona, New York, um, working for a sole practitioner. And I went to work at KG&D uh, Architects in Mount Kisco. And went there for several years. And then eventually we both got licensed. We launched Five Cat Studio with Anne Marie's license. I launched a, a sort of an interim company called the Construction Documents Company, where I um, did basically side work for other architects. I did construction documents and existing conditions, mostly condi existing conditions where I would go in and I would measure homes, put together the existing conditions drawings, and then, you know, provide those services to architects. Maybe one of the most profitable businesses I've ever created. <laughs> Sometimes I wish I should, no. should have just stuck with that because it was so focused and, and such a low overhead. But that sort of gave me the opportunity to move on from KG&D before I was licensed, but allowed Anne-Marie to start uh, the firm, which was a, originally Anne-Marie McCarthy Architect with her license. She had, been li she had gotten licensed. Um, and we launched the firm. And that firm, once I got licensed, we renamed it, um, we actually incorporated it, McCarthy LePage Architects uh, PC, and created the brand Five Cat Studio, and built over the years uh, a firm that serves Westchester County, New York. Uh, we call them high-end, small projects, which were additions and alterations, family rooms, kitchens, master bedroom suites, garages, uh, but for very high-end projects, very wealthy people. And sort of found that niche. That's probably the first entrepreneurial um, in the world of architecture where we recognized that there was a there was a niche there. Um, after trying to be as twenty nine year olds launching our own firm, um, trying to instantly compete with the firms that were thirty forty years old designing the big Greenwich houses and the big Westchester County houses. That's what we wanted to do, and so we launched the firm thinking that's what we were going to do to to. 29-year-old kids who really had no idea what we were doing, right? And uh, and failed miserably at that, but recognized that there was that niche of those big firms didn't want those little projects at the time. And those, those, those projects weren't being served by the other sole practitioners and small firms. They sort of had the lower, 
the lower level uh, clients. And so there was this this high end market that wasn't being served ad- adequately. And we recognized it, built a brand around it, and really capitalized on it, uh, and built a really successful firm in Westchester called Five Cat Studio. And people who've heard me talk about this in the past know that I say this all the time, but I believe it. You know that I joke very often that Anne Marie and I make the perfect architect combined because she loves architecture. She loves design. She loves the the traditional path of architecture. And I love business. I just, I'm passionate about it. I'm passionate about the game of business and the interaction with clients and, and people, right? And managing people and working with people and helping people, you know, solve problems. I love that. I'm passionate about it. So together, we work really well together. Um, and so six, the Five Cat very quickly found success both internally and externally. When I launched Five Cat Studio, I soon wrote, started writing a blog um, called West, uh, Living Well in Westchester. It was a blog intended for our clients, our market. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it was a very early blog when blogs just started. We had one of the first websites. We launched the firm in 99. We had one of the first websites in all of Westchester County for architects, and I can, I can confirm that. Um, we, had our, we had our website before probably 99% of the architects in Westchester in 99, which is late for websites, uh, but that's pretty common in architecture. But started that blog. That also very quickly found a place because people were looking for that information, right? And so um, – it helped me market the firm. The website helped us market the firm because we were one of the only sites that people would find when they searched for Westchester Architects. And that blog helped me communicate to our potential clients. So when I would go meet with a client for an in- initial interview, I would ring the doorbell and they would welcome me like I was their best friend because they had been reading the blog for years. Um, and so it was very, very powerful. Um, at the same, you know, the following year, that was 2006, I started the blog. 2007, I, I launched the Entrepreneur Architect blog, which is really where the beginning of Entre, Entre Architect begins. 2007, I launched the Entrepreneur Architect blog. I wrote that for me. I did not intend it for anybody else. It was a, it was a placeholder, an organizational tool that I used that when I found interesting articles or interesting websites or cool links, I would post them there. I would write a little bit about what it is and it would be a place where I could go back and very quickly find what I, what I had found. Um, and because in 2007 there was virtually nothing on the internet for architects and business that blog found an audience very quickly because people were looking for it. There was a, there was this vacuum in the internet on the internet and throughout the world really at the time uh, for any th- information about specifically for architects, specifically for small firm architects like myself, um, to find uh, information about business and how to succeed in business and how to get to, and that's what that was all about. It was about being an entrepreneur and an architect. And, um, and that is where the community started. Well, you know, it's one thing that's pretty interesting to me about uh, these two different blogs that you tar- talked about starting in 2006, 2007, is that one, and I'm only going off of the title, Living Well in Westchester, seems to be very much addressing what the concerns would be or the perspectives or the interests 
of the audience as opposed to, I mean, it, it seems like the kind of blog that might talk about what living in a wonderfully designed home right. would enable you to do or, or what kind of effect it would have on your quality of life. So there's a there's definitely an audience based focus suggested in the title of that. So what was in that blog? Yeah, that's exactly what it was, and and that was a marketing tool that was intended to be uh, an outreach. And so it was exactly that. It was it was the market that we were sh we were looking for. That small we had already established ourselves as a small firm, high end residential additions and alterations firm, and so that's what we wrote about. We wrote or I wrote about. I wrote about. Um, and I would write once a week and I would write information, typically answering the questions that my clients would, would ask me. So I would answer them on the blog. So other people, when they start searching for those terms, they would find them. And so it was very much, uh, about living well. It was about, um, and it wasn't only architecture. It was about design and health and happiness. And it was all of that stuff. And it was really a way for us to appeal and to interact with our potential clients. I imagine it was something else too. I imagine it was a way to change the way that, that folks who read that blog looked at architecture yeah. and what role it could play in their lives. Yeah, it, it, it did. It did. And, it, and I guess that's true. Um, it started telling the story of what we did as architects, which is, which is a big piece of what we do today. Right. And, and that's, and what we're encouraging other architects to do, because that's the answer that we are all looking for. We're all looking for how do architects find or gain more value in the eyes of our clients. It's the answer to that is to tell your story. And that's even back then wasn't so conscious, but that is what I was doing way back then. Did that come from any, anything you had observed when you're in professional practice? In other words, did you uh, did you deal with prospective clients and recognize that they all had the same kind of question or maybe they all had certain consistent misperceptions about what architects did? I mean, where did you come up with the ideas for the kind of things that people needed to know through that uh, through that uh, blog? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it came from experience just to, to write something and see how it resonated. Because back then, everybody was, that was all there was, there was before social media. And so blogs were the big thing. So when you search for something, you found a blog about the topic that you were looking for. And so you didn't, we weren't competing with Facebook and Instagram and all of the rest that's out there today. And so the, the comment section in the blog was very active, where today it's almost inactive. Um, but I would write something and I would get lots of feedback in the comments. And so I would see which articles were were resonating and which were working and which were not. At the same time, because I was interested in business, I was reading magazines and looking for business websites and looking specifically for online marketing uh, and learning more about that. And, and that I was really, really interested in that about how to sort of market online. And, and that was why I started the, the blog, because the blog was a way for me to market the firm. It was a way for me to to reach out to the, the clients and recognizing that there was no other, uh, there was limited information at, on the internet for what they were looking for locally, right? And so there were like a couple of big websites nationally and globally, but there were there was none locally. Um, and so uh, learning from other business websites and other marketing websites, I was doing what they suggested, right? And I would, so I would do something, I would experiment to see how it would work. 
And if it worked, I would do more of that. If it didn't work, I'd stop doing that. And I would just keep, because I, I'm hungry for the information, I would read and then I would execute and I would test. Well, it seems like you, you always had to reach outside of the field or outside of the uh, domain of architecture to get this information. Like oh, you yeah. weren't seeing a whole lot of sources that had to do with the business of architecture. You were seeing a lot of sources that had to do with business generally. And then you'd have to go through a translation process to figure out, well, how does this apply to the specific profession of and practice of architecture? Yeah, I do that. And, and we do that still today. Everything that we do is, you know, we're learning what other industries are doing and what's successful, uh, what's working for other industries. And we're bringing, reinterpret them, reinterpreting that information and presenting it to the community. What was it that first uh, indicated to you that there was some kind of market for this knowledge or that there were uh, a bunch of people out there who were practicing small firm architecture who really were not just needed to know it because everybody needs to know it, but really were, were hungry for the information, who wanted to know it? The community. The community told me. What happened is that I launched the blog, Entrepreneur Architect, for myself in 2007. That blog found an audience, right? And, and the community was formed. It formed in the comment section of Entrepreneur Architect. Um, and you can actually still find that blog out there somewhere. It's, it, was, it was actually markarlapage.wordpress.com. If you search for it, I'm sure you'll find it. I think there's also a website, Time Machine, that you could find everything that, that we've done in the past. But that's what happened is that an audience found, and many of the community that are still active today in the Facebook uh, group and on the membership, um, mostly they're in the membership because they've been on the ride from day one. They were the ones that were commenting in the blog. Um, and they're still there. They're still part of the community. And so that community um, encouraged me. You know, I would write this stuff for myself. And then I would, because there was a community, I started writing for the community, right? And so I started serving them. And I've discovered since then that even more uh, of a passion than business is my passion to help other people. It's, it's my fuel. When I help somebody and I get feedback that that person has, has uh, benefited from something I've done, I feel good and I want to do more of that. And so that's really the, the reason why this all has happened. Uh, it's because other people have benefited from it. And selfishly, I feel good about that when that happens. And so I do more of that. And, so, and it just keeps growing and growing. And so the, to answer your question, it's the community that encouraged me to make it into something bigger. The blog was there. The information was there. The community, the community was there. And th those people many of who are still in the community said, you need to make this into something bigger. You make a, make it a magazine or uh, start a website or do something with it. That's beyond this. And so after many years of procrastination, <laughs> uh, uh, cause that's what happened and, and procrastination uh, caused by fear, because every time you take a big leap, there's fear in your way. Even to this day, every time I, I go to the next level, there's, there's this thing that the resistance that stops me from doing it, the, the fear of that, of what may happen, whether you succeed or not, right? Because there's two sides to that. And so after many years of procrastination, the year 2012 was where we launched it. Um, late in 2012, I recognized that December 12th was coming up. I thought that was cool. December 12th, 2012, 12, 12, 12. 
I said, I'm going to write a blog post. This is it. I'm going to, I set the deadline that I was going to launch Entree Architect um, on December 12, 2012. So I made that decision. And then in order to hold myself accountable for it, I set that deadline and I announced to the world in the blog, which the world was probably 25 readers <laughs> and my family. Um, but I announced in there that I was going to, on December 12th, 2012, I called it my 12, 12, 12 project. I announced that I was going to do something life altering for myself that, and something that would, would benefit the world. It would benefit others. And that was, if you can actually find that blog post too, it's still in the, in the blog. Um, and, and that's all I said. And I encouraged everybody else to do the same thing, that everybody else should have a, a, their own 12, 12, 12 project. And so, and I didn't tell anybody what it was going to be. I just said, I'm going to do this. This is going to be something that's going to change my life and it's going to benefit others. Uh, and so now I set a deadline. So now I, on December 12th, I have to do something that's going to be that big. And so on December 10th or 11th, <laughs> I started scrambling and uh, put together the website, put together the domain um, because I just had to overcome the fear and just do it because now I'm being held accountable. Um, and I learned about podcasting uh, and what I needed to do to podcast because the plan was to launch Entree Architect and the podcast on December 12th, 2012. And December 12th, 2012, at 12.12 in the afternoon, um, I launched the whole thing. I launched the new EntreeArchitect.com and I launched the first episode, the intro episode, which is to this day my favorite episode of all of them, um, episode 000. I launched the the podcast the same day. Well, so it sounds like what happened was, is that you were on kind of a, a journey of personal discovery, personal and professional yeah. discovery. And you sort of opened up that process uh, to people through the blog that you were writing before. And then when a community started to develop, then you we're able to see what it is that other people are interested in. What is it that other people need? What is it? What questions do they have? Where's the gap? Right. Uh, you knew what your own gap was, but then you were able to see, you know, what is the gap that, uh, uh, that other people are experiencing Right. now, you know, we're talking about what, you know, in these days probably seems like ancient history when you're talking about 2006, 2007. But when you look back on that time, are there, uh, are there lessons that you feel are still relevant today for either yourself or for uh, other people who are entrepreneur architects? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, the recognition that fear is always there and understanding that, that, I mean, for some of us, it's more powerful than others, but it's always there. Even at the most successful people, the fear is there. Um, and so recognizing in order to overcome fear, uh, you need support which I had as a community. The community was encouraging me, to do, encouraging me to do this. And you need some sort of accountability, right? You need some, something that holds you to doing what you say you're going to do. Um, and that blog post was that accountability. And I, and I use that same method today to get to the next steps of where I want to go. The community reinforces that this is a need this is the gap that needs to be filled, right? They keep looking for something that's not there. And so there's a gap. I recognize the gap. Um, I try to create a solution for that gap. And then I hold myself accountable in some way to respond and to launch and execute on the, the solution to resolve the, the, to fill the gap. 
So tell, tell us a little bit more about that fear. What is it that you were afraid of? I don't know. I mean, fear, fear is always sort of there. Um, I think it's the thing that holds me back most. And I think that there's two sides of it. And there's a fear of failure and there's the fear of success. What will happen if it is successful? You know, how will it change my life? How will it, what will other people think? And the, uh, what will other people think is very little for me. I don't really care what other people think. Um, there's a, that's a little bit there, but I think mostly it's the fear of failure and the fear of success. And it's hard to explain. Um, you definitely don't want to put a whole lot of effort into something and have it not work, you know, and there's been multiple examples of that where we, where we put in months of effort, uh, and launched something that we thought was going to, you know, be super successful. And there's just crickets and actually something recently has happened. You know, we launched the, the planning course and nobody bought it (laughs) zero. (laughs) Right. And so, which is really interesting because architects are constantly asking for how do we, you know, succeed? And the answer is plan to succeed. And, but, um, I don't know if it was the timing or the pricing or, and we, we got a lot of feedback, so we do know what caused it, but that fear of failure is always there. When you sort of put something out there, will it work? Um, and the fear of success, which I think is probably my biggest fear fear. And it's not a conscious thing. It's not like, Oh, what if I become successful? It's what will happen if you become successful? Because I have these giant dreams, right? And I've always been a huge dreamer since I was a little child. The dreams has been what has motivated me, but I also the type of person. And I know many other architects are the same. We're big dreamers, but we really enjoy the dream, right? We, if we, if we execute on the dream, then the dream goes away. And that's not a conscious thing. It's just the way we are. And so I have had to learn over my lifetime as an adult that the dreams are really important, right? My mom taught me that. Dream big because you'll never get to where you want to go if you don't dream about it. But there's a second step to that. You also need to execute. You can dream your whole entire life away. And if you don't put some intentional plan and some intentional process to execute on that dream, you will just continue to dream. And because we love to dream and we love to have these big ideas, it just becomes this, this uh, addiction where we just dream and dream and dream and we never progress. And then it sets into disappointment because you look back and say, I've never executed on these big dreams. Well, you know, dreams, uh, when you're looking at something that's just a dream, there's only upside to it. But when you're looking at executing on that dream and making it a reality, yeah. then all of a sudden there's parts of it that might not be as fun. You know, there's actual work involved. There is um, the possibility of failing, not necessarily the whole thing failing. Sometimes it's only pieces and parts failing, but still there's, there's sweat you got to put into it and there's kind of a risk, right? There's a risk that the, uh, that the dream when it becomes a reality is not going to be as rewarding or fulfilling as it was when it was just a dream. Right. Right. And I, and I have found that the only way to overcome that is not to, and it, it, it is what I just said. It is sort of put together a plan and, and figure out how to overcome that fear uh, and execute on it. But really the answer is to embrace your strengths as a dreamer, embrace your ideas and those, and your big, you as a visionary and find other people who have that same passion and that same 
motivation to execute. They don't care about what the dream is. Just tell me what I need to do and let's go, go. Let's go, you know, take the hill. That's what, that's the solution is to find a team that loves to execute on your vision. And that's what we're building today. But, you know, putting things into reality probably comes with a different kind of reward. Earlier uh, in this conversation, you were talking about how you realized that you had um, a great passion for helping people. Mm-hmm. And the way through which you were helping people is by learning more about business and spreading knowledge about business and allowing people to uh, to be able to have the practical tools that they needed to uh, enact their own dreams. So, you know, in a way, I wonder if that acts as kind of a counter to the fear of success. It does. And that's exactly what happens. You're right. And, and like I said before, it's the fuel, right? And, and so the fear is there sort of pulling the fuel out, <laughs> emptying the fuel. But when you serve and you, and you get a response from that service, because if you don't get the response, if you just serve and you don't get any sort of acknowledgement that, um, that your, your service is benefiting, it, you don't get the fuel that you need to continue. Um, and so absolutely, I think that that is um, my biggest motivation is, is cause I look at it now today as, as we're building Entree Architect and, and now looking forward to Gable, it's, it's the reason I'm doing that is because I want to grow something that's much bigger than me. That literally changes the world. People hear me say that and they're like, oh yeah, good, yeah, good luck changing the world. But I think we can. I think that architects have a significant role in changing the world and we need to do that foundationally first. We need to build the businesses that we need to be successful, to be great architects. And then those architects all over the world can help help change the world. And so that's my motivation. My motivation is to build something that's far outlast me when I'm gone, that, that what Entree Architect started as, um, whatever it becomes, um, is, is continuing to serve the world uh, through the, the seeds that we planted way back then. So it may, it may change and evolve, but it still uh, comes back to that same core. Yeah. That same core vision that you had originally. So let, let's go back to 2012 for a moment. Yep. Uh, I'm curious about your decision to get into podcasting. Now, podcasting was nowhere near as big in 2012 as it is today. Um, what was it about podcasting that attracted you? What made you think, oh, you know, rather than just going with the blog, you'd already been successful with blogs and building a community and an audience. But what was it about podcasting that was attractive to you or, uh, you know, felt like it needed to be part of the big uh, twelve twelve plan. Yeah, I think it was probably mostly my my consumption of content of of reaching out to other marketing people and reading their blogs and reading you know and and sort of going into the industry, diving deep into that stuff, right? And them saying podcasting is going to be big podcasting is going to be something that everybody does in the future uh, because there were there were podcasts then and they were there were some popular podcasts and they were growing really big really fast because they were there were so few podcasts that you would launch a podcast and it would grow very quickly and so i just recognized it as another tool to create more content right the blog was very successful I just saw it as the next level, just as another way of getting more information out to to architects. 
Well, another thing that was changing at the time, if you're thinking about the media landscape, is the growth of social media, right? Yeah. So you yeah. you said back in you know 2006, 2007 that the way your community began uh, coalescing or growing uh, was through the comment sections on blogs. Well, who comments on a blog these days? You know, there's a there's discussion but it happens in a variety of different things. So how did um, social media begin to enter the picture picture for Entree Architect? And you yep. know what did that whole decision process look like in getting into social media? Yeah, the, the first place that we started social media, and when I say we, it was me, um, was, was LinkedIn. When LinkedIn first started, uh, and I, I'm an early adopter for this kind of online technology. So I was always looking for the next thing. And so I was early on on LinkedIn. Uh, today, I'm not that active on LinkedIn. We have to actually <laughs> rebuild our LinkedIn platform. But we, I started a, a LinkedIn group in 2009, which, again, was pretty early for, for any sort of social media groups. Again, it very quickly found an audience and it grew really quickly. Today, it's almost 20,000 members in the, in the LinkedIn group. Um, the problem with the LinkedIn group is that I didn't know to manage it well and it got filled up with spammers and marketers. And, and today that's a big part of what it is. We need to go back and clean it up. But, but it, what it taught me was that there's an audience there. And, it, and early on, before it got, got contaminated, it, it, it was the next step from the comments. It was much more active than the comments, you know, and I would write it a blog post. I would post the blog post in the group and we would have a bunch of, we would have a discussion in there, right? So that, that community that, that grew up around the blog that convinced me to do this all followed me to LinkedIn and we had that conversation in LinkedIn and LinkedIn grew and became very popular. And then it got out of control because I didn't manage it well in, in terms of who was in it and who wasn't in it. Um, which is what inspired me to launch the Facebook group when Facebook groups started. I don't remember the year we launched the Facebook group. It's actually on the group. I just forget when it is. Um, but the the Facebook group we launched, uh, well, which is very interesting. I just looked at, just thought about the timing. The LinkedIn group was 2009. So that was inspired by the blog audience, not Entree Architect audience. Um, and so Entree Architect, and I think I called it Entree Architect right from the beginning. And I think that may be where the, the name Entree Architect began um, on the LinkedIn group. I think that's where I started using that term. I may be wrong, but I think that's where that, where that happened. But, but I learned that social media was, was going to work, right, for what we, what we wanted to do in terms of community. Um, and when we launched the Facebook group, we very consciously, we made it a private group. Uh, only architects are allowed in the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. Uh, architects and architecture students, so you have to prove that you're an architect. We we curate who's in there. We know exactly who's in there. If sometimes people slip through, and we'll we'll boot them out. But what's really important, and today it's over six thousand members in the Facebook group. It's a very active, vibrant group. And from day one, uh, I learned from the LinkedIn group that you need to cultivate the culture. You need to set the standard of what you want to happen in that group. So we're, we are only talking about business life and leadership as architects. So you're not allowed to talk about politics. You're not allowed to complain about things that are outside. Go somewhere else if that's where you're looking for. There's thousands of places where you can complain. Um, 
you can't be negative or aggressive. You can't bully. Um, if you don't agree, you can disagree, but there's no, there's no aggression there. It is a place of positivity and support and encouragement for architects where it's a place where, because it's private, we can have this open conversation. Our clients are not there. Um, our, our, um, consultants are not there. Uh, the businesses who are trying to sell to us are not in there. It's just us. And so we can talk about money. We can talk about clients. We can talk about building inspectors. And every day, there's dozens of posts with 50 to 100 uh, comments on them, and it's a vibrant place. And, and it's because we've been very, very intentional about the culture in that group. We, even, we have several volunteer moderators that help m- make sure everybody's playing well together and, and filter who comes in. And so it's, we've learned a lot with social media. Uh, and and the, the thread is that community, the community building. Um, the LinkedIn group started it. The Facebook group is there. And everywhere else we're on social media, we use the different social media. We have Twitter and Instagram are really more about reaching out, you know, just sort of pushing information out, whereas the LinkedIn group was and the Facebook group is, is to bring everybody, everyone together to create that community. And I tell you, there is an entire different discussion about the relationship between community and culture. Um, when you say community, you know, in the type of clients that we deal with, which tend to be mid to large size firms, you know, creating a culture for that community of people um, is absolutely paramount for leaders. So there's a whole other, uh, whole other conversation to, to have there for sure. But there's one point I think, you know, since we're, we're kind of going through your path chronologically, there's one point I want to make sure that we do cover. And that's the point at which you focused entirely on Entree Architect, because I know for a long time you were still working actively in 5CAT and you had Entree Architect going on the side. And I don't think at, you know, when you were doing that, you were always monetizing Entree Architect, or that's not really the right kind of word. You, were, you weren't, um, it wasn't a business in the sense that it didn't generate revenue and, and that kind of thing. So what, what was that transition like? Yeah. When I launched Entree Architect as a platform, I launched it as a business. And so from day one, when I, when I went from the personal blog to Entree Architect, I launched it as a business. And the reason I launched it as a business and not just this side thing is because I, I from day one, wanted it to be something that was life-altering, something that would change the world from day one. And so the only way you're going to do that is to have some sort of funding, some sort of revenue to come into this organization that will allow us to grow and support the architects that we need to support and to create the resources and create the tools and to create the technology um, to, 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 to meet our mission. And so from day one, it's been a business. And so the way we did that is after the first year, the first year as Entree Architect, we just sort of, again, I'm talking we, I just basically continued writing the blog, continued doing the, po- the, the podcast, continuing nurturing the, the community wherever we can. Um, and then again, it was the community that, you know, I saw the gaps from what the community was looking for. So in the comments section on social media, you know, people would start talking about, you can see which posts were most popular and you can see, you can find the gaps of what people needed. And so in order to monetize, and I have no problem using that word because that's exactly what we did is we took a non 
revenue business and monetize it. We, we figure out a way to bring revenue into this, this model in order for us to grow the model. You can't grow the model without some sort of funding. And so the first thing I did, and it was very easy, is I took all of my forms and checklists that I developed for my own firm, 5Cat, and I packaged them up as PDFs. I organized them and put them in folders and packaged them up in a zip file. And I named it Entree Architect Foundations and I offered it for sale and it's still for sale. It's still something that sells every week. Um, and it's just standard business forms and checklists that we built for our own firm. It even still has the five cat logo on it. You could just, you just, the idea is to take my forms and edit them for you and you go use them. And it instantly found success again, because there were people looking for it. They looked for it and they found it and they bought it. Um, and back then it was really hard to sell things on the internet. You had to like put a bunch of different social, you know, different, uh, uh, technology sources and different websites to get people to, to put their PayPal in. And it was really difficult to sell those original packages today. It's a lot easier because we have a, a platform that allows us to do it. But because of that success, I said, okay, well, why don't I take my contract again, something that I found people talking about all the time, looking for a solution for small firms and sole practitioners, the, the, um, the standard AIA contracts that are out there are really good. They're really good for, for certain things, but they're also really scary, uh, for our clients. And so our market, really small projects, um, we built, I worked with my own attorney and we built a, uh, a, a custom, uh, owner architect agreement for my firm worked really well. And so I packaged that up and I actually started that as my first course. That course is also still available. Um, and so the course is me walking people through how I built my own custom owner architect agreement and the template for my agreement was free with that course. And so I would just walk them through what we did, how we did it. And, you know, they, they could take our documents and edit them however they want to edit them. That too became really successful. So I, I, I very quickly realized that, um, that this was going to work, right? That this wasn't just a place where people were going to consume information, but it was also a place where people uh, looked for the resources for them to be successful and, and would purchase them. And so we proved the model and proved that it would work. And then it continued creating courses and other things. And it just kept growing and growing and growing until we decided to launch a membership. And that was sort of the next, the next level. Right. So the, so the, the beginning business model was all built around delivering value through resources and education, knowledge about how to wind up using those resources. Right. Right. Exactly. Yep. So what did you, uh, were there certain ways that you could have made money that you said, no, nah, I don't really want to do this. So like advertising is an example. What was your adver uh, what was your attitude toward advertising and sponsorship and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, we started, I don't remember exactly where we started sponsoring the podcast. Um, I had no problem with that. The, the reason we didn't use sponsorship is because we didn't have a very large audience. We were very, very niche, right? We were serving architects only, and we were serving a niche of that niche. We were serving sole practitioners and small firms. And so that, although it was a really thriving, vibrant community, wasn't very big when it came to advertising and sponsors. And so we couldn't really reach out to sponsors and, and have anybody pay us to sponsor or advertise on the site. 
Um, it was something that we that I looked at. It just wasn't something that would work. But once the podcast gained traction and there was an audience around the podcast, um, I created something called the uh, our platform sponsorship, which is still how we do it. We don't actually – it's not a podcast sponsorship. It's, we They sponsor the entire platform. And so when, when someone sponsors Entree Architect, they sponsor the platform or the, the podcast. They sponsor the blog and in the newsletter. And essentially – I looked at it sort of like the the PBS model where a big corporation comes in and they just sort of support the entire mission of PBS, uh, public television. And so that's that's the model I looked at. I said, it's not about how many downloads I have for my podcast. It's not about how many views on my pod, on, on my blog. It's about providing access for that company to access my community. And that's what we're selling. We're selling access to our platform. Um, and so advertisers started recognizing that that was a value that if you wanted to reach specific, this specific niche of small firms, we were one of the, the, the most successful, biggest platforms for small firm architects in the world. If you want to reach that audience, then here's a way to do that. And that, and that worked really well. And today it still works. So as Entree Architect grew, uh, you started finding the opportunity for different revenue streams. Yeah. Right, so you're diversifying how the how the uh, revenue comes in. You've got products that you offer. You had uh, training and education. Then you had uh, sponsorship, platform sponsorship. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that uh, that there was a like a, a a membership type model that came online at some point. Yeah, what we did is, I think it was about a year after we launched uh, Entree Architect. I announced uh, the Entree Architect Academy, which is still technically what it's called. Um, and it was a mastermind group. It was the first mastermind group. And a mastermind group is to bring uh, a group of peers together and uh, have a meeting online weekly and go through a specific structure of, of sharing knowledge with one another and then giving one member of that that mastermind group an opportunity to focus the entire uh, mastermind, the minds of all the people within this group, focus it on one specific topic or a struggle or a, a, the, um, a, a, something that this one person is working on. And that's the intent of a mastermind group is that everybody in the group is focused on solving a, a problem for one member of the group. And then the next week, it's another member. And the next week, it's another member. And so I launched that in 2013. That sold out in two days a full group in two days. Again, it's the community. The community was looking for it. It's the same people that were in the blog who were responding in the comments, followed me to Entree Architect, followed me to social media. And then when we launched the membership, they were instantly ready to become part of the membership. And I think the most important thing of all of our success is that it's never been about Entree Architect making me rich. You know, it's not, it's not about, and it's, and I can guarantee you, it is not making me rich. I would be making a lot more money practicing architecture, you know, just as an aside, living on the edge still, you know, every month it's living on the edge. Um, but it's all in service. It's all goes back to serving the community and me feeling good about it. And so all of the, the memberships and the products, uh, and today we do workshops, all of these things, uh, we do 
in response to what the community is looking for. It's a way for us to serve the community of small firm architects with a mission of helping them be more successful with the big global mission of making the world a better place. Sure. Well, the community wouldn't stay with you if they weren't experiencing success based on things that they were learning from you. Now, the way that the that the community or the platform seems to be evolving, and I'm kind of imagining what I'm doing is I'm sort of uh, thinking of a map, right? Yep. As you're as you're talking about the evolution of things, I'm sort of thinking of a map of of the journey that Entree Architect has been on. Yeah. And it seems like now you've got a situation where people can participate to all these different levels, right? If somebody right. wants to to be a part of the Facebook group and and simply talk to professional peers from all over the country, probably all over the world. All over the world. Uh, yeah. That's that's something that they can do. Uh, your podcast is available uh, for free for anybody who wants it. There's that level of things. And if people really want to dig in, uh, there's always the the mastermind groups or the paid membership groups uh, that you were that you were talking about before. So there's a lot of different options for people uh, right. going through. Right. So tell us a little bit about what your last nine to 12 months has looked like and what that means for the trajectory of Entree Architect. Yeah. Well, it started with our move to North Carolina. So I grew up in New Jersey. I Once we were married, I moved to Westchester County, New York, and spent 20-plus years in Westchester County raising my family. Um, about 20 years ago, both Anne-Marie's brothers and my brothers, coincidentally, both moved from the New York metropolitan area to the Charlotte, North Carolina area. My brothers are about an hour north of Charlotte and Lake Norman, and Anne-Marie's brothers are about a half hour south in the Ballantine and just over the border in South Carolina, uh, south of Charlotte. And so our families moved. And uh, Anne-Marie's parents were still in New York. Uh, my parents are sort of nomads. They go from upstate New York on the St. Lawrence River down to Florida in the in the winter, and they still have the Paramus house that we all grew up in where they sort of came for a few months while we were while we were in Westchester. And we stayed in Westchester because one, we had our, our business there, we had our life there, uh, we had our support there. Anne Marie's parents were a significant part of helping us raise our family and allow us to grow the businesses that we have. Um, so they were in, instrumental in, in all of that, even to today. Um, but about, I guess about two and a half years ago, um, they, they surprised everybody, which no one ever imagined that would happen. They picked up and moved from New York to North Carolina by their sons. Um, within nine months, they made, they made the decision, packed up the house and sold the house, bought a house, moved into the house within nine months. They were out. Nobody, nobody expected that. And so we had, we were locked in into New York, but they left and they left probably in order to encourage us to go to. Um, and so they went to North Carolina. My parents continued to be nomads. And, um, and we looked around and said, there's no reason to be here anymore, right? All our family is in North Carolina. Uh, Anne-Marie's parents just moved to North Carolina. We decided after 20 years of considering it, you know, everybody was trying to pull us down to North Carolina. We said, all right, we're going to go too. And the reason I give you that background is because that's, that's, the, that's where things shifted. Uh, in July, we finally made the move. So we sort of 
over the the last year and a half brought five cat down at, in terms of workload because we didn't want to leave a big giant workload in New York while we were moved to North Carolina. So we um, reduced the workload to a couple of projects and we're still just wrapping up at just a few loose ends up there now and essentially shut down the New York uh, five cat studio moved to uh, North Carolina. Entree architect never had any bump because it's an online company. Nothing changed. Right. Um, and so the intent is to bring five cat studio to North Carolina uh, the plan for um, Five Cat Studio in North Carolina is to move more towards development rather than client-based work, and that's the plan for that, which is probably delayed now with the the pandemic, and so that's probably on hold for now. But over the years, and right up to when we moved, the like you had said, the our focus went from Five Cat to Entree Architect. That in order to build Entree Architect into what I want it to be. I recognize that I have to put all my effort into it. And so we continue to practice. We even today still are practicing architects, but most of my energy now is building Entree Architect. Um, when I moved from New York to North Carolina, it triggered some events. One of my big long-time dreams, one of those big dreams that I used to dream about, you could even look in my old journals, the seeds of it are there, is to build a company that provides uh, a way to leverage the network of the architects, to bring all the architects together and create something uh, that we can together create some massive impact on the world. And so that's always just been this one of those ideas out there. When I moved the company Entree Architect LLC in New York to North Carolina, New York sent me a letter and said, you can't have an LLC in New York if you don't live in New York and the company is no longer in New York. So you have to dissolve um, Entree Architect LLC. So I had to reestablish an entity in North Carolina. And I thought, why not at least launch the company that will do those big ideas later on now? And so instead of relaunching Entree Architect LLC in North Carolina, I launched Gable Technologies Incorporated with the idea that that would become a, a holding company for lots of big ideas. Um, and so today, Gable Technologies owns Entree Architect. They own the new Gable Media, which is a new podcast network that we just launched. And it will be the company that will eventually create the platform for practice uh, for architects throughout the world. That's the long-term plan for, for Gable Technologies. Well, it's it's interesting because as I'm listening to your story, I'm realizing that there is something more to the evolution of your business than just what we started out um, talking about, which was this definition of entrepreneurship, seeing a gap in the market, and then figuring out a, a creative way to, to, to fill that gap and, and serve people in ways that they hadn't been served before. It seems like there's um, a much more complex mix of other types of uh, other influences, right? So you had a reason to uh, to move five cap from new york to north carolina that was based on your personal life right but that required a change in what five cat did right because the model might not uh might not sustain or move cleanly from one geographic market to another is also an opportunity for you to try out something new and then there were these other 
uh, regulatory barriers that probably, uh, you know, served as a catalyst. They probably got you to do something you wanted to do anyway, right? which was to expand into this different area, different way of doing things. And that required a corporate structure in which to do it. So now you've got the framework to grow in the direction that you wanted to go anyway. And that was brought about because of some rules in the state of New York. So you've got looking at what the community needs and creating some kind of offering that, that addresses those needs. And then you've got these, um, these other things that might be practical considerations that really don't have to do specifically with that gap. Right. So it seems to me that, that, that that way of seeing opportunity and, you know, those, those kind of forces are at play for everybody in the entree architect community, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm hoping that throughout the years, people have looked at entree architect as a model for, for big ideas that they have. And I encourage, I've, I've encouraged that all throughout the years on the podcast and in the blog on social media, um, that I'm just a kid from New Jersey who had big ideas and just kept moving to the next level, right? I just sort of found the opportunities to continue to grow. And so I hope that, that other architects are seeing it as a model. And there's a bunch of other architects out there doing similar things and not so similar things, but, but sort of uh, leveraging the technologies that we have and the communication tools that we have, uh, expanding the definition of architecture uh, and what we do as architects, which is a big passion of mine as well. Um, and so they, I, I do hope that we become a, a model and an inspiration for others to expand and, and, and follow some of those dreams and execute on them. Well, that's an interesting question because, you know, you were willing to change so much about what you did uh, as you followed this path, mm-hmm. right? It changed fundamentally. So there's a lot of folks who are small firm architects who might be saying, you know, I didn't go to school to become a media magnate. What I really want to do is, is I really want to continue to practice architecture. But at the same time, the world is changing in such a way that no one can afford to just stand still and create a business that was designed to, uh, to work in, you know, 1994, you know, it's just not going to sustain uh, the way that things are, are changing. So the question is, is how can people in the entree architect audience take advantage of entrepreneurship and still at the same time, stay true to the core of why they got into the profession to start with. Yeah. First of all, I think every small firm architect is an entrepreneur architect. That's, that was why the name was named that. Um, I mean, it was named after what I was, I was doing, but I believe that if you have launched your own firm and you're practicing architecture, then you're an entrepreneur architect. And so to, to build a strong traditional architecture firm is a fantastic mission and you should continue to do that. But I think that if you have a passion uh, or maybe just a dream that, you know, you can do something bigger or something different or something that's related to architecture and expand what you're doing as an architect or something unrelated. Although, you know, Entree Architect is a media company but it is all it 100% revolves around architecture and supporting what we do as architects and so i've never left the profession i right now because we've moved from new york to north carolina i basically on hold with 
the practice. If I didn't move, I'd still be practicing. Um, but even if I didn't, this is something that I've said in the past that once you become an architect, you are always an architect because we are trained a very specific way. We think a very specific way. We are inherently different people, uh, the way we think and the way we, we solve problems. So whether you are designing buildings or you're designing systems or we, or you're, you are solving problems in some other way, um, you are always an architect. And so you can, you can be, um, a technology entrepreneur designing software, but you will bring the skills and the talents and the knowledge that you have as an architect, not as a prior architect, as an architect to solve those problems. And so I don't agree with people who say that if you're not designing buildings or doing construction drawings or solving spatial problems, then you're not an architect. Anybody who tells me that I'm not an architect, I, I could, we can have a big, long conversation about that because I will always be an architect and I will practice again and I will build buildings again, but that's not where my passion was. And so I don't want anyone to be discouraged uh, and held back because you are afraid that you will lose your identity as an architect. And I think that is a very big um, barrier that we have as architects to reach beyond what we do as traditionally as architects to go beyond it. And I think it's not only holding us individually back, I think it's holding back the entire, I know that it's holding back the entire profession, the fear of expanding the definition of what we do as architects. Um, I think it's a really, really big problem. Yeah. And it, it sort of um, contradicts this idea of having greater influence. You know, I was just thinking as you were talking that even within the traditional practice of architecture, you know, anyone who's run a firm can tell you there are a lot of different hats to wear. Yeah. And a lot of times those different hats require very different skill sets, uh, very different mindsets, but all of them have to come together uh, in a harmonious way and in a um, and work together to build a successful practice. So really this dynamic is already part of what small firm architects or really architects working in any size firm face already. Right. Right. And I, and I think that we are happiest as human beings and we are most successful and most productive and most efficient when we are pursuing things that we are good at, that when we are pursuing our, our, our strengths and building upon our strengths. And many architects, when we get into architecture school, discover that designing buildings are, is not our strengths. And, we, and so many of us struggle our entire lifetime because it's not our strengths. And we, we are not fulfilled and we, we are not happy with what we're doing. And many of us don't even recognize that is the cause of the, of the discomfort and the frustration. And so if there are other things that you are really good at and when you do them, you light up and you are excited about it, those are the things that you should pursue. And if you, if there's a gap in the world for what you are passionate about, that is where you will find your ultimate success is when you take the thing that you're really good at and you put all of your effort into it and you're serving the world in some way and benefiting the world, that's where it starts growing and becoming this thing that you can't stop and you are, it becomes your passion. Uh, it becomes the thing that makes you happier than anything else in the world. And sometimes it brings money and sometimes it doesn't and you're still really happy. Yeah, and as long as you're staying true to that core, how you're serving that core can... Uh can take a lot of different forms. Right. Well, Mark, 
we have been at it for quite a while and it's probably time for us to wrap up our conversation. Is there any question about your journey that you wish that I had asked? No, I don't think so. I, I, I appreciate the opportunity to go through the entire journey. I've talked about the journey in the past. I've never gone this deep in it. Um, and I do appreciate sort of documenting the map, the journey that we've been through from my childhood with my dad all the way through 5CAT and the blogs and Entree Architect platform. And because I think it becomes uh, another benchmark. I think this podcast that that we just recorded is something that as we continue to grow Entree Architect and the team gets bigger and the community gets bigger um, and Gable becomes a bigger, more significant thing, we can use this as sort of one of the historic benchmarks in the journey of, of where we're going. Um, and today I say we, because it absolutely is we. It's no longer me. I'm just guiding the ship. This whole thing is being uh, run on internally by a few people who are on my team, but it is all as a result of the community. If the community wasn't there, if the community, community didn't uh, encourage us and embrace us and uh, work together and share knowledge with one another and those relationships blossom into other relationships and they all become more successful because they're sharing their knowledge. That is the, the biggest, most powerful thing. Um, and it is definitely not me. This is growing way beyond me uh, and it will always grow way beyond me. And I really appreciate the opportunity to um, sort of tell the story and document this moment in, in the history of this organization. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking the, the time to do that and sharing that story with everyone. And hopefully what it'll do is it'll give people um, a lot of ideas that they can apply in their own entrepreneurial journey uh, for how they might evolve and grow and create something that has the kind of energy and excitement that the Entree Architect community uh, has really built or, or participated in building uh, all of these different years. Well, Mark, I think it's uh, I think it's safe now that we can probably untie the ropes and <laughs> let you get back to uh, the steering the ship that you were talking about before. I just want to say I appreciate very much um, you being open to the idea when I came to you with that pitch to tell what your story is, and I hope it's been helpful for your audience. Thank you, Bob. I, I appreciate your friendship. I appreciate the, the knowledge that we get to share with one another, and I really appreciate the opportunity today to tell the story of Entree Architect. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Mark. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris 
owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast. It's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.